Today's podcast is a very important and valuable conversation about a dark topic, child sex trafficking. With that in mind, we'd like to start with a content warning that what we discuss today could potentially be triggering and may not be suitable for all listeners. Many, many people in our own societies that have been abused and exploited and tormented. And so some of this is really, really difficult. And it's very difficult on a physical, historical, personal level. It's also very difficult on a spiritual level. And I think one of the most important things to circle back around to is the fact that as with the Samaritan woman at the well, as with the young women we deal with in Cambodia and the young men that have been sold and mercilessly abused and are worthless in the eyes of the world. God places great value on them, and they are to die for. That too applies to us. Welcome to the Ending Poverty Together podcast. I'm Shalane, and we are here to discuss big questions about poverty in bite-sized ways. Brian McConaughey is the founding director of Ratanak International. He was a career forensic scientist in the RCMP and has examined crime scenes both nationally and internationally, testifying in some of Canada's most complex murder trials. He has addressed both parliamentary and Senate committees regarding human trafficking legislation and advised G7 law enforcement on international child sex investigations and human trafficking. After a series of international child abuse investigations, Brian left his RCMP career to dedicate his life to serving exploited Cambodians. In confronting overwhelming evil, Brian has found his greatest joy, the transformation of lives from slavery to freedom. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yes. You know, I heard you speak for the first time, probably about a year ago now. And honestly, it was a gut punch of a, uh, of a time. And I would have to say, I left that event with deep hope. And so I am really um, looking forward to our conversation today because I believe our listeners will be able to experience both as you share with us some of the really dark truths that you have, but then also the joy and the hope that is to be found. So I just want to assure our listeners that um, there is hope in this topic today. Yes. Brian, I would love for you to start by answering this question. What does it mean to you to thrive? Well, I guess the the, the societal definition of thriving is nearly always linked to materialism and perceived success and wealth, etc. What I've experienced in my own life and what I've seen with many other lives is that thriving is a, is a much more internal process mm. about being calm, satisfied, not, um, not terrified, not traumatized. Mm. The ability to sit be quiet with your heart rate down hmm. and actually be who you are more and more for me is becoming thriving less than hmm. a particular achievement or event or circumstance. It's basically who we are internally. And, and that involves 
on occasion letting go of a lot of stuff, but but also accepting the realities of where we are, the reality of where we are that is not always perfect. But mm. uh, as long as we can reach a, a certain level of those basics of life that are attained uh, in terms of food, sustenance, you know, shelter, etc., a lot of thriving is, is really internal after that. I have seen people incredibly uh, rich and successful and quote-unquote thriving people who are absolutely miserable and not mm -hmm. thriving. Mm -hmm. And I have seen people living in relative poverty with very little options in life who I can honestly say are thriving mm -hmm. and who, who have love and joy in their lives. Uh, mm -hmm. So a lot of it's internal. Mm -hmm. What strikes me, one of the things that strikes me about your answer is the physiological state of not having the racing heart and having that internal quietness, that actually sounds to me like a, a trauma-informed kind of response. <laughs> is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, yes, it is. And, 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 and to a degree, it's a, it's a personally informed. I have experienced mm. lots of that. I have mm -hmm. experienced lots of racing heart and stress and panic and grief and not knowing where to turn based on mm. my background and based on the, the the world I come from my my RCMP career based on the the job title wouldn't tell you very much in the RCMP but but my specialties were were blunt trauma shootings and stabbings so that gives you a little window oh, into wow. my world mm -hmm. and when you spent decades living in that world you understand grief and stress and you mm -hmm. You understand the things that are overwhelming. And that was only to be compounded when encountering Cambodia, post-genocide Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And that's something I would appreciate you sharing with us about. How did you make the transition from RCMP to the work that you're doing now in Cambodia? And why specifically Cambodia? <laughs> well, it was all an accident. Uh, I, I, didn't, okay. I, didn't, I didn't plan anything. I, I was... Working through my career in the RCMP, I had a real plum job, very close to the CSI TV show, as close as you can get. Okay. Uh, so it was exciting, uh, as well as lots of stress. But I really was sick of dead people. I mm. was just dealing with dead people and trauma every day. And so I decided I've got to take a holiday. I want to go somewhere that's that's hot and sunny. I live in Vancouver, which is often not hot and sunny. It was gray and wet. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go somewhere hot and sunny, full of live people. So uh, uninitiated, I, uh, I got on a plane to go to Asia just to relax and ended up quite by accident in a war zone on the Thai-Cambodian border oh being uh, shelled and shot at. Don't ever ask me to be your travel agent. I was uh, just going to say, <laughs> who gave uh, you the advice to go there for yeah, a relaxing? Yeah, it was, it was just me winging it uh, as young men are apt to do. And, and you get in a lot of trouble that way sometimes, but also mm -hmm. God can use our, mm -hmm. our biggest mistakes sometimes. And so I confronted grief on a level I'd never encountered before even with the job I had, uh, mm. seeing skeletal Cambodians staggering out through the minefields, trying to find medicine in Thailand, uh, wow. and carrying them physically, carrying them into little bamboo hospital while the environment was being shelled. Mm. And, uh, you know, such was my vacation. Wow. I mean, I was trying to get away from this stuff. And instead, God just ramped it up to a whole new level wow. uh, in terms of what were my responsibilities to these people. And it became very clear as I started to read about the environment I was completely ignorant of um, that the, the, the country had been isolated. Cambodia had been isolated. And no medicine was allowed in because of 
very complex and grotesque geopolitics I won't get into now. But Cambodians after the genocide were just being left to die. And the International Red Cross was not in there. There were no embassies in there. The World Food Program was not in there. The UN had cut them off, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, I'm Irish and kind of stubborn. And I, I just was infuriated by this and mm. encountered actually on a TV show a little girl named Ratanak who died, 11-month-old, and died because no medicine was allowed across that border for her. She wow. was not too far from where I was on the Thai side of the border. Mm-hmm. And so I figured, really in my ignorance, I figured I, I'm going to smuggle a couple of suitcases of medicine into Cambodia. That was my great plan. Uh, and, and if I did that right, I could save X number of lives. Um, the problem was that without any consultation with me, God gave me nine tons of medication sitting in Vancouver. So now as a nine security... Nine tons? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, hospitals in the lower mainland of BC found out what I wanted to do, and they started donating meds. So I, I end up with nine tons of really good stuff. Those are really big um, suitcases, Brian. <clears throat> they are really big suitcases. So I've never bought a container... I've never shipped a container. Even worse, I've never smuggled a container, especially as a security cleared member of the RCMP, mm-hmm. where the Canadian government supports the embargo. So this is illegal. Mm. So it was one of those watershed experiences where had the oaths of allegiance I had taken to the RCMP and the Canadian government, were they to trump my responsibility before the Lord of what he was calling me to do for children in Cambodia. Mm. You talk about heart racing. Yeah, there were times Mm -hmm. making those decisions, recognizing that that would cost me my career, at least. But to make a very long story short, we we learned how to smuggle. We got the meds in. Uh, The Cambodian government, which was considered an enemy state at that time, the Cambodian government were so thrilled that I'd broken the embargo that they stuck me on state-run TV as the great Canadian who'd broken the embargo. And I'm trying to keep a low profile. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to just downplay this. So Uh, much for that. uh, Exactly. That didn't work either. Um, And then I came home and people had found out that it was successful. And so while the RCMP were upset, other people were handing me money and saying, that's crazy. It worked. You go do that again. And a charity was born. So I I claim no great wisdom or bravery in terms of starting a charity. It got thrown Mm. at me and and ended up developing. And 32 years later, here we are. Still very much focused and and very much in love with the country of Cambodia and her wonderful people. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me. One of the things I recall from hearing you speak a year ago was you talking about the relation, the unique relationship that you have with government officials in Cambodia. Yeah. I'd love for you to share some about that because it's really, it was quite astounding and very encouraging to me. Yeah, there's a, there, there was an overlap between my RCMP career and, and what I do with Ratnak. It was 18 years I was doing both. God remarkably preserved my career through another long geopolitical thing that hmm. I en- ended up going from pariah to hero in one afternoon with the signing of the peace accords. Oh. But that preserved my job. So I'm still working in the RCMP, and it was only a matter of time before my two worlds would collide. And on this occasion, it was actually working a a file, Willie Picton. Robert Picton was a serial killer in in Vancouver who processed women as well as the pigs he was processing. And so I I was having to deal with just horrendous circumstances, absolutely horrendous circumstances in terms of uh, body parts of dismembered young women uh, who had been murdered, etc. And I was working this large task force with Vancouver City police officers and they, they had another completely unrelated file 
associated with uh, a guy who had been torturing uh, downtown east side prostituted women. And so they had arrested him, seized his videos, and I think they had something like 65, 67 victims on there. And they asked me to review the tapes, and these were torture tapes, they were grotesque. Uh, Nothing in 20 years of homicide had prepared me for this stuff. Uh, But they wanted me to look at the evidence tapes because he had also recorded prepubescent little Asian girls uh, in the same predicament that he was abusing. And and I had adopted children of my own from Cambodia. So this is a very, very difficult Mm. thing for me to to encounter. But as I watched those videos, it became very clear that they were Cambodian children. And uh, Vancouver City Police asked me for the country these children might be from. And uh, I, I very quickly in this process realized that that God had a heart for these kids far more than any human had. Mm. Uh, they belonged to him. And mm-hmm. so rather than just giving me answers from what was in the videotapes of what country we were in, because they were all inside little rape cubicles. There was no street scenes or any of that stuff. It was just internal mm. rooms with, with children. So very little evidence to go on, but in 72 hours, I had the GPS locations of the crime scenes and the names of the children. That is, that's not good investigation technique. That is when God steps up and does something mm-hmm. miraculous, as he clearly did, to the point where I had very non-Christian senior police officers when I put in my report saying, Brian, you ever believe there's a God? <laughs> and uh, and I, would, I would just comment to several of them, uh, well, actually, I'm functioning on that premise. Uh, hmm. and, and they didn't have any understanding of what to do with that answer, but clearly mm-hmm. this was not about me. And that's where I, I realized that that God had given me skills through policing that I never anticipated uh, mm-hmm. would be useful in the world of human trafficking and mm-hmm. child and adult sex slavery. And so, I, I once again, I fell into this where God simply asked me over and over again not to come up with some great grand project to save the world, but he simply said, Brian, are you brave enough to deal with what I put in front of you? That was mm-hmm. the only question always when you've got, in that first case, the first seven little lives Mm-hmm. Uh, on videotape with no expectation of ever finding them and God saying, I'm not asking you to solve human trafficking. I'm asking you to deal with these seven. Are you prepared mm-hmm. to deal with these seven? Are you prepared mm-hmm. to swallow hard and step into the unknown? Because I had no skills for this. Mm-hmm. And then realized that when I stepped into those areas and when I was outside of my comfort zone, when I was well outside the normal box, when I was stressed and didn't have the requisite qualifications, certifications, training, skills, that's when God shows up. Mm-hmm. That's when He arrives and He says, yeah, this is actually about me, Brian. Mm-hmm. This is simply a question of will you do what you're told? Because right. this is my, my war to fight. These are my lives to save. Will you do as you're told? Mm-hmm. And so, it actually becomes very simple. Hmm. Wow. Wow. So when you think about some of the relationships that you've established over the years, you've talked uh, some about how these things have influenced officials and people in Canada. Uh, how about in Cambodia? Sorry, I'm, I'm realizing as I got off on that, that police tangent, I realized I didn't ask you or answer your question about you Cambodian government relationships. It's okay, because you answered a bunch of other beautiful things that were actually wonderful well, to let, hear. Let me backtrack, though, to okay, that, because sure. it's very interesting. Normally, what happens in international investigations is first world police agencies go into the developing world doing their investigations, and they're kind of stomp all over the place with their big police boots, mm. uh, use diplomatic force, get what they want from ill-equipped unskilled, uneducated, sometimes corrupt police agencies get what they need and leave, and they never look back. Mm. 
Mm. And, and I had enough of a love for Cambodia and respect for Cambodians, even in the police community, which, which had a reputation for being very corrupt and mm-hmm. not well-trained, etc. But I had enough love for them as individuals that they, when they really assisted us in our investigations to find mm-hmm. these kids, etc., uh, that I went back to the Canadian ambassador and I, I actually somewhat jokingly said, do you have a budget to schmooze? And, and she said, well, actually I do. And I said, I want to use some of your money. I want to, now that the investigation's over, now that the Canadian government has got exactly what they want and we don't need Cambodians anymore. Mm-hmm. Now I want to go back and rent a hotel room. I want to bring in the media. I want to write up a certificate and I want you as ambassador to hand a certificate to every single Cambodian police officer that helped us. And I want it done on TV. And remarkably, Canadian uh, media actually flew to Cambodia for this as well. Mm. So it was televised in Canada as well. And so simply by honoring those that are considered dishonorable, Mm -hmm. honoring police officers that were not well respected, even in their own community at that time, who were Mm -hmm. often considered corrupt and dangerous, simply saying, I'm going to give credit where credit's due and honor you where you have helped us. Well, uh, just imagine six months later, when I walk in and I'd like a warrant executed, I'd like some information. I mean, is the red carpet rolled out? Absolutely. Yes. Because we have chosen to honor them. We mm-hmm. have chosen to treat them with dignity. Whether they deserve dignity or not is actually irrelevant. Exactly. Because when you think of our dignity, given our sin and our fallenness and who we are, none of us deserve dignity at all. We deserve destruction. And yet God affords us massive dignity. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the rules of the game were laid out before me then to say that we need to honor this sovereign country. So that ultimately over years has led to tremendous relationships of trust and respect and honor mm-hmm. with people that frighten many other NGOs and governments. Mm-hmm. And, and we're, just, we're just honest. We're upfront. We do what we say we're going to do. If mm-hmm. we make a promise, we keep it. And we honor them when they help us and we respect them. Mm-hmm. And that... I think is who we should be as Christians. So often Mm -hmm. Christians and Christian organizations avoid governments, Mm. especially if governments are difficult to deal with. And I have found that my responsibility is not to try and sort out those problems. My responsibility is to honor them for the Lord, irrespective Mm -hmm. of what happens. And that, as it happens in a Cambodian context, has made for tremendous partnerships with that government. Mm-hmm. And those partnerships have really assisted you in doing the work that God has called you to do in dealing with this really highly complex social justice issue of child sex trafficking. Hugely so, yes. We're, we're now the government who is very skittish, and because of their history, I totally understand why the Cambodian government would not want to tr- uh, trust anybody from the West. I mean, the West has abused Cambodia in so mm-hmm. many ways through the 1970s, 80s, 90s. But through honoring them, they have grown to trust us. And so now, as a, a young Christian team in Cambodia, these are, I mean, the, the Ratanak International team that, that does this repatriation of human trafficking victims, etc. They're, they're young Cambodians. They're not, they're not Westerners. They're all mm-hmm. young Cambodians that are out there to change their world and change their country. But they're working in an organization that has chosen to honor their country. And so in that that combination of events, they thrive. Mm -hmm. And so they're now in a position where they can impact the country tremendously and be respected for it by their government. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's an example, I think, for for many of us in what these young Cambodians are doing, who, yes, in fear and trembling, when we started this, were going into meetings to negotiate and to contend for lives with generals and senior government officials that were very powerful Mm -hmm. people. 
And now those very same government officials are coming to us and saying, would you write policy for us? Would you write protocols for the protection of young lives, for the repatriation of young lives, for the care and concern of young lives? We didn't even see that care and concern in the Cambodian government decades ago. Hmm. But that, that has grown and been nurtured in a way that's wonderful to see that happening now where government officials are seeking out our advice and loving to implement the fact that they too can love their own people. Mm-hmm. I so appreciate the work that you're doing on that complex social systems piece that that you know we know that this is not just a um, a one-dimensional issue that there are so many different aspects to this issue would you speak to us I'm assuming that some of our listeners maybe don't know a lot about the actual work of Ratnak so what yeah. what are your Cambodian staff members doing what how what does this actually look like yeah, yeah. No, I'm really excited by what's happened in this past 10 years. We we have, uh, in the past five years, been, been given the gift of a wonderful uh, rehabilitation center that's purpose-built to not feel institutional. It feels very comfortable, and yet it was specifically designed by a team uh, of engineers and architects from, I think, five different countries to be there's no building impossible to commit suicide in, but it's really hard to commit suicide in this one, the mm. way it's laid out. It's designed to have many attributes that facilitate rehabilitation. And so just to be clear, rehabilitation meaning someone you have rescued? Recovered from from, okay. from human trafficking. We don't do rescues per se. Yeah. Okay. The, the main centerpiece of what we do is we've been privileged by the Cambodian government to participate in negotiations with other governments uh, in bilateral agreements to get, to get undocumented young people home again. Mm. So one of the most serious issues is the issue of China and young women. China, because of one-child policy and gender preference, is currently 35 million young women short. Oh my. That is a recipe for massive human trafficking mm-hmm. because that's 35 million young Chinese guys without any prospect of wives, girlfriends, etc. Mm-hmm. And so organized crime is very happy to fill that gap for them by going to vulnerable countries and finding vulnerable women, mm. tricking, extorting, manipulating them into forced marriage, into work contracts, into nanny jobs, whatever. And then they fly to the environment, let's say China, where their passports and visas are destroyed and now they're illegal in that country and they belong to whatever criminal entity they belong to. And from there, they're sold off to profound abuse. And so getting them home is, a, is an impossibility, theoretically, because they have no papers. They, they're, they're illegal. If they're found in China or Malaysia or whatever country, they're, they're simply put in prison. So the first stage was to uh, negotiate bilateral agreements to get them home. And, and we've been privileged that the Cambodian government asked us, again, as a, as a young Christian team, asked us to participate in those negotiations and mm. assist as what we now are considered subject matter experts in this stuff. So we have bilateral agreements with many countries now. And so through the, that process, we can get temporary papers and uh, these young people, both ma- male and female, primarily female, but, but also male now too, mm-hmm. uh, we can get them home. They arrive home completely shattered, Mm -hmm. shamed, abused. I mean, the stories uh, of them coming out of their abusive environments. We have uh, young women uh, jumping out of upper story windows, jumping out of moving cars. Uh, We had one last year who swam through the sewers to get out. Uh, Life's got to be bad 
to take that chance. We don't know how many die doing these kind of escapes, but Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but we are we are privileged to receive them in Cambodia at the airport. The the Ministry of Interior and Immigration Police, etc., notify us, and we go to the airport and pick them up. And then we have the privilege as Christians of receiving these young lives that are that are just throwaway considered mm-hmm. garbage, bought, sold, abused, and disposed of, and welcoming them in and saying, you are precious, you have value, mm-hmm. and allow, allow us to introduce you to the life, the value of the life you never knew you had. Uh, mm-hmm. What a what a wonderful, wonderful process. And so from there, they go to the rehabilitation, uh, narrative therapy, cognitive therapy, uh, medical intervention where that's required because many of them are malnourished and, mm-hmm. and have injuries and diseases and dealing with what all else. And then from that, because there's very limited social services in Cambodia, we have programs of job skills so that they can have jobs of dignity and hope for the future that ultimately inoculate them from the temptation of going back to brothels or or very risky environments. If they're getting a good paycheck, they're Mm -hmm. they're immune from that. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest protection, as well as working with the whole family. And the village in terms of receiving your daughter back who has now lost her virginity, who she believes herself to be garbage. Mm -hmm. And you as a family believe her to be garbage. No, let's let's reset this whole equation Mm -hmm. in terms of her value, in terms of how precious you are as a family to her and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Uh, And working with the local police and the local village chief to basically reintegrate them back into society in a healthy way, all while not forcing the gospel on them ever but being honest with them that that they are precious to us because we serve a God that thinks you too are precious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so we don't, we don't quote, proselytize. I kind of hate that word. But we, we don't share the gospel with them. It's a secular program. It's in partnership with the Cambodian government. But my belief is that we don't have to share the gospel if we love people the way we should. Mm-hmm. If we love them radically. Mm-hmm. If we love these young people like they're our own children, they will demand the gospel from us. And I give you 48 hours before these young women are kind of going, why are you like this? Right. Why are you doing this? Yeah. What, what is that thing, compassion thing? I've never seen this before. I've never been treated this way. I've never been cared for. Well, the um, dignity and the worth yeah. that you are letting them know that they have simply by who you are and what you're doing yeah, must loving speak them. just volumes. Yes, that love. Yeah. And so, in that context, when they ask, that's the appropriate time Mm -hmm. to say, well, actually, there's this God that thinks you're to die for. And I love that expression. I just mm-hmm. love that expression. What a, what a beautiful thing it is to share with them. And, and, and so that they know that not only would somebody think they're so valuable, they would die for them, but mm-hmm. God of the universe would do that. And, and the Cambodian government are aware we're Christians. We've been honest about them or mm-hmm. about this with them. And they say, well, we're so concerned that, that you or any other organization wouldn't take highly vulnerable young people and manipulate them into some religious cult. Mm-hmm. You're clearly not doing that. You're, you're loving these young people and caring for them. Mm-hmm. If they ask and they want to be like your staff, go for it. Not a problem uh, okay. because you're caring for them. And so there's trust. Yeah, the context of, of trust is vital in all of this, uh, mm-hmm. and so it's been both for the the victims we deal with and and for government that are sort of the umbrella under which we operate. Mm-hmm. Everything functions much better with trust rather than trying to do some kind of clandestine Christian thing. We just live our lives. Right. right. Well, and you've clearly built trust over what did you say thirty some years? Thirty two years now. Yeah. Yeah, where you have shown up with integrity and mm-hmm. done what you said you were going to do. Yeah. It, you're you're building those bridges of trust. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So when these uh, young people have 
come through this program and you talk about this reintegration and a very collaborative approach with multiple different family or chief or village community leaders. What does that actually look like? How does that practically happen? Well, I mean, really, that's up to the young Cambodian staff. It's not the kind of thing that I could do. Uh, I mean, this mm-hmm. is the, you know, so, uh, so often people are congratulating me on the wonderful work I built. This is not the wonderful work I built. This mm-hmm. is the wonderful work that young Cambodians have built for their own mm-hmm. people because they know the language. They know the body language. They know the subtext. They mm-hmm. know what's not being said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they know how to work with government officials. They know how to work with village officials. But, but I mean, one, one just little anecdotal story that perhaps is useful is um, some years ago, I was out at a, at a village and we were at, at the home of the village chief. And, and these guys are not necessarily friendly all the time. And this particular village chief was introducing me to young people below the house. And normally the houses there are up on stilts. And, uh-huh. uh, and so he had a whole bunch of tables set out underneath the house. And there's all these young people, like teenagers and early 20s and whatever. And I was talking to him about this. And he was saying, well, these are all people that have come back from trafficking, etc. And they treat the village chief like dad. He's like the favorite uncle. Because when he was drawn into this process, he was taught that we want to rely on you as village chief because we play on very normal human instincts. Mm -hmm. We can either choose to do our own unique Christian thing as an appendage to society or we can embed with with society itself. And so we had gone to the village chief and and local police officers and said, you know, you are the big man of the village. You are the powerful man of the village. And so we want you to help protect these vulnerable young people. And so we honor them. We lift them up. And, of course, everything in Asia is gaining and losing face. Mm -hmm. Well, we're giving them huge face by saying you're the big man. Mm-hmm. And these young people are coming back, and so we want you to to nurture them. You're going to be the protector, and 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 we actually have them sign a contract committing to protect these young, uh, vulnerable young people. And so some of these guys, because they're, you know, their chests are puffed up, and they're the big man now. They're the protector. Mm-hmm. So we've played on all those instincts that mm-hmm. are, I think, appropriate and God given. So often mm-hmm. twisted by the world, mm-hmm. but but this desire to be the protector, particularly yes. for males and the father figure. And so he was very proud to tell me, well, these, these kids, once a month, they come to my place, the village chief for dinner. They never did that before. But he's the protector. He's the big man now. Well, okay. well we'll totally play into that, that characteristic that God has given mm-hmm. men in authority mm-hmm. uh, and women in authority. In the village level, there's many village chiefs that are females, etc., too, and they get this. Mm-hmm. And so they are now honored by participating. And so it actually works out as a process of Cambodians helping Cambodians. Mm-hmm. And the catalyst in the middle of it all is a team of young Cambodians who are bringing Christ to the table and saying, we love you, mm-hmm. um, in a very non-threatening way. Well, yeah, and how beautiful mm-hmm. that now these seven young people who have been recovered from this horrendous lifestyle have community with one another as well. Yes. That there is a safe place yeah. for them to be gathering together in this, the home of this protector, to me, that feels like a, a huge part of their healing as well. It's very much embedded in their community and their culture, mm-hmm. uh, which is the healthiest place to be restored, is mm-hmm. that which is familiar. Because these are young people that have been taken off to another culture, another language group, right. tormented in other countries, without any hope of getting home. Mm-hmm. And now they're finally in their community again, and, mm-hmm. and we're coaching the community to love them appropriately while loving them ourselves. It's a lovely picture that I think resonates for me as I, 
as I read passages, one of my favorites for very obvious reasons is John 4 and Jesus sitting by the well with the Samaritan woman and how he navigates her, not shying away from the ugliness of, of her life. Mm-hmm. For those of you who are interested, read John 4 and try and find condemnation in what Christ is saying. It's not there. No. He is not pointing out her faults. Uh, you have had five husbands and the man you are with now is not your husband. You are morally fallen. You are rejected by your community. You are an outcast, all that kind of stuff. He's not saying that to condemn. I now have really spent time in that passage. Mm-hmm. That's Christ saying, I see your pain. I know you were rejected. Mm-hmm. You, you had no choice in this. Mm-hmm. And you were a victim in this. And I understand who you are. And on that basis, I, the great teacher, the rabbi, will sit and break all those social barriers. And I mm-hmm. will talk with you. And I will speak with you. Mm-hmm. And I will treat you as an equal. And I will treat you as an adult, and I will give you honor and dignity. And, and, and him giving her that honor and dignity, what's the result of that? This uh, rejected young woman who was despised by her own society, who was out to get water at a well by herself, because none of the other women woman of the village would have anything to do with her. Mm-hmm. She goes back and is transformed into an influencer. Because yeah. not only is she brave enough to express who Jesus is, and this, I have met a man that taught me everything I ever did. She expresses it to the very people that rejected her, that she was not with and was segregated from. But more importantly, very quickly, we learn that they listen to her and they do what she says and they go out to meet Jesus. So, she's influenced. So, there's this complete transformation of a broken young woman by Christ who simply doesn't sugarcoat it. He identifies where she's at, but with dignity. Mm -hmm. So, there's tremendous, tremendous stuff here for us in terms of how we treat those around us. Mm -hmm. And so, this this applies to us in in the West as well, uh, in whatever societies or circumstances we're in. How do we actually treat people around us? Mm -hmm. How do we think of our own uh, value before the Lord, our own self-esteem? How do we treat others in that? Do we actually love them? Because if we do sacrificially, radically love people and care for them, I think it's transformative. And and I think we would have a far easier time ministering to those around us if we we love them first. Mm -hmm. Brian, I feel like we could talk for three hours and still not (laughs) feel like we'd really tapped the well of just so, so many beautiful experiences. And Mm -hmm. I just, I appreciate your authenticity. I appreciate how easy you are to chat with. And I think that that's part of that integrity and part of the humility that you really do possess in knowing that this is God's work and that you Mm -hmm. have been obedient. And so, I just, I thank you for all that you're doing. As we wrap up, I am wondering if there's anything else, any final thoughts you want to share, anything else that we didn't touch on that you were hoping to speak yeah, to I today? I think there's one, there's one important thing that I think is, is worth saying for those of your listeners. I, I'm under no illusions that, that some of the things I've said may be triggering. They may be mm-hmm. very difficult for some listeners. Uh, there mm-hmm. are many, many people in our own societies that have been abused and exploited and tormented. And so, mm-hmm. some of this is really, really difficult. And it's very difficult on a physical, historical, personal level level. It's also very difficult on a spiritual level. And I think one of the most important things to circle back around to is the fact that as with the Samaritan woman at the well, as with the young women we deal with in Cambodia and the young men that have been sold and mercilessly abused and are worthless in the eyes of the world, God places great value on them and they are to die for. That too applies to us. Mm-hmm. And so, no matter what uh, any of your listeners, whatever whatever we have experienced, whatever you have done to others, 
whatever has been done to you by others, however mm-hmm. broken you feel, however tormented your history, a torment that your history may involve, there is nothing you can bring to the Lord that will shock him, mm-hmm. that he cannot deal with, that mm-hmm. he has not already paid the price for. You will never get to the stage where you'll say, well, this is what's happened to me, or this is who I am. Mm. And Jesus will say, well, I love, I, I love humans, but I'm sorry, you're beyond the pale. Can't deal with you. You're, you're an exception. You cannot do to that. He has seen it all. Mm-hmm. He has dealt with it all. He is qualified to deal with it all. And in love and compassion, he is qualified to deal with us. So for every one of us listening to this, no matter what the circumstances, mm-hmm. we are to die for, and we can trust Him for that. And so that's tremendously encouraging when some of this stuff is, yeah, dark and difficult. Mm-hmm. But that's why He's Lord. And that's the hope. It is. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us, Brian. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. To explore what your next steps could be or find out more about Ratanak International and what other Canadians are doing about poverty, start by checking out fhcanada.org resources.